0: I think the, the category that we're involved in right now is so interesting is that artificial intelligence and machine learning will become a part of the core marketing flow of everything that people are doing around the world as this market continues to grow. I look at ML model monitoring and observability as important and critical as when people were first setting up their first networks for individual companies and they were like, wow, we should probably monitor what's happening on our networks. Because if things go awry, not only does it mess up the top of the funnel, it has a big impact at the middle of the funnel and
1: you're listening to the Paris Talks Marketing Podcast, where we interview top marketing leaders at high growth SaaS and other recurring revenue based companies. Our goal with this podcast is to cut through the fluff and jargon of digital marketing to reveal what's really working at some of the fastest growing, most successful SaaS companies today. The Paris Talks Marketing Podcast is sponsored by Hop Online, a performance growth marketing agency. If you like this episode and would like to have a similar conversation with someone at our agency, just go to hop.online, H-O-P.online, and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now, let's get into the episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Paris Talks Marketing. Today, my guest is Stu Gold, who is the General Manager and Chief Revenue Officer of SuperWise AI, a highly energetic, advanced technology, the sales and marketing business development leader with a unique and highly successful background in launching, growing, and scaling early stage technology businesses into new and emerging markets on a global scale. Stu has the unique background of launching and growing new divisions, products, and services at some of the world's most important technology companies, such as Microsoft and Cisco, being an early executive team member at a number of venture capital-backed international technology startups, as well as leading business turnarounds at multiple $100 million-plus global businesses. After leaving Microsoft, Stu was involved in some of the earliest companies and biggest acquisitions focused on the advent and massive global adoption of IP-based video communications, which led to working with Cisco's video communication and collaboration division, where he held strategic sales and marketing roles on WebEx and led the launch and sales growth of Cisco's first-ever cloud-based SaaS video service called Callaway. Callaway. His current company, Superwise, is setting the pace in the fast-expanding and critically important field of machine learning Model Monitoring and Observability, which provides the underpinning to the expansion of artificial intelligence across finance, e-commerce, gaming, healthcare, autonomous vehicles, and much more. Stu lives in, in the New York metro area. He's an avid skier and mountain biker, an enthusiast Jeep, enthusiastic Jeep owner, and a two-time finisher of the New York City Triathlon. And I'm finally done with that intro, Stu. <laughs> You're I've welcome. done a lot in
0: my career. I've done a lot. It's been an exciting time. Thanks yep. for having me. I appreciate it. Well, Stu, what you. haven't
1: what haven't you done, Stu? After that, it's, uh... Uh, whatever
0: whatever it is, I'll probably find it next. But <laughs> I've always been lucky enough to find my myself in some of the most interesting, newest, advanced technologies in emerging markets. Many things that we consider. Commonplace today, even like you and I do in this video call. When I was first involved in the video communications market, uh, this was something that we would never believe would certainly be this crystal clear, this easy to use.
1: Right it now. seems like it. I'm going to want to. I'm going to want to dive deeper into AI and ML. This yeah. is a marketing podcast, but yeah. I, I want to get a little geekier today, and and I just want to note for for our listeners, we're also experimenting with LinkedIn Live today. So, Stu, I want to talk about AI and machine learning in the aspect of marketing, because it's something that we're very interested in also in our agency. What are some of the most innovative use cases that you've seen with AI and machine learning, specifically for marketing?
0: Yeah, I would say specifically, and this is a really interesting space, because when you think of artificial intelligence, you think of a lot of the original use cases that it was being used on the operational side. But now what we're seeing is more and more clients that are using artificial intelligence. And for us, it's the machine learning models that underpin that, but they're using it to really uh, determine the value of their client, of their prospects that are coming into their site. So all of a mm-hmm. sudden you've got insurance companies that are able to determine and score new users of their potential products. The same thing happening on the financial services side, extremely important. And this is where machine learning models can go awry and have a huge impact because if you're being Uh, If the artificial intelligence goes off the rails a little bit because of the data that's coming in or of the algorithms that have been created, all of a sudden the results and the impact on the bottom line of a business is bigger than ever. Now you've got people that should be getting credit cards that aren't getting credit cards, people that are getting mortgage rates at the wrong mortgage rate. More importantly, people that are being offered certain types of products, solutions or services That don't really fit what their requirements are what you're seeing now is this is what makes i think the, the category that we're involved in right now so interesting is that artificial intelligence and machine learning will become a part of the core marketing flow of everything that people are doing around the world as this market continues to grow i look at ml model monitoring and observability as important and critical is when people were first setting up their first networks for individual companies and they were like, wow, we should probably monitor what's happening on our networks. Because if things go awry, not only does it mess up the top of the funnel, it has a big impact at the middle of the funnel and even at the bottom of the funnel as it really gets to the, to the sales conversion of really understanding who your best customers are, where are they coming from, what their lifetime value is, what are the right products for them, how do we service them, and in some ways, what is the risk associated with them? All of those are elements that our clients are working with. And that's across real estate, insurance, fintech, gaming is all using artificial intelligence to make sure that the experience you're having is challenging enough that you want to keep playing, but not so challenging that you don't want to come back. All of these things are being driven by artificial intelligence these days.
1: So one one com- concept that I wasn't too familiar with that I came across with SuperWise is this concept of model observability. Can you just explain that a little bit more? What is model observability and why is it so critical to machine learning?
0: Sure, it's really critical because you have to have visibility into what your models are doing. Because of what's called the stochastic nature of the data that's actually coming into machine learning, artificial intelligence models, these models are actually learning. They're making decisions based on what the data that they've been trained on and the data that's coming in real time. And if those, if that, if if that data starts to go off the rails, if you're not understanding where there's missing data, where the outputs aren't meeting the inputs, where there are issues related to uh, the variables and the uh, parameters in which certain data should evolve to, and it goes beyond those areas, you're going to have a. a there's going to be an impact on the output and the literally the impact of your on the bottom line of your business. So, for example, like I said, all of a sudden. Certain types of populations or certain subpopulations or segments of your users aren't getting the right offers that they should get from an e-commerce perspective. People are getting denied credit cards when they shouldn't be getting denied credit cards. And that could be for a number of reasons. So we're looking first at visibility. What's happening with all the data that's coming in and that's streaming through your models? The second part is being able to analyze it and analyze it at scale. We're talking about if not millions, trillion terabytes of data that's coming through in a streaming nature of information that needs to be analyzed very, very quickly. And after we do the analysis in real time, it's very important to be able to actually provide resolution. How are these anomalies after we detect them? How do we look at them as incidents and what then needs to be adjusted very quickly by that data science team and go back and retraining that model? If you don't do that, What you have is something called data drift and data shift. And all of a sudden, the results of these artificial intelligence models are an issue. Now, I don't know if this story is true or not, but the best story that everyone talks about is one of the founders, uh, it was Wozniak's wife, supposedly, Steve Wozniak's wife of Apple applied for an Apple credit card, and she was denied. Now, she was denied because the artificial intelligence determined that for whatever reason, she didn't meet the criteria to get an Apple credit card. Now, imagine that. Yeah. She's the founder of, she's the, the wife of one of the founders of Apple, and she's denied a credit card because the artificial intelligence was determining that for whatever reasons, she wasn't applicable to getting that credit card. And that's what, those are the sort of stories that you hear about that can happen when the AI yeah. isn't working properly.
1: Stu, can I bounce something off of you that we're working yeah. on with, within our marketing agency? We're trying to build machine learning models to predict uh, lifetime value of a new user that would come in and yep. sign up for a SaaS product. So exactly. the, typically a SaaS, B2B SaaS product would have a free trial period or a freemium plan. Most people, eventually the customer, customers will usually start with a free trial or with a, with a freemium plan. And when they convert through an ad click, let's say from Google ads, we would like to be able to predict the lifetime value with some, with a high degree of accuracy based on certain signals that we can gather in the first few days of that new user. So that could be things like, how often are they they logging in and using the product? What features are they using? Even where in the world are they coming from? Or what device are they on? Or or there's a whole host of other things. And sometimes they're specific. Often they're very specific to the business. Do you think this is for a marketing agency as a concept? Do you think this is something viable or um, is this something that I may be missing here?
0: No, it's extremely viable. And while it may not have flowed down to marketing agencies such as yours, it's exactly what the largest corporations in the world are already doing. They're utilizing these models. And that's why being able to observe these models and monitor them is so critical because those types of decisions that are being made, that sort of knowledge that's being made can all be uh, offset by just a little bit. If the model itself isn't acting properly, if it isn't capturing the right data, if it isn't looking at the right parameters, if it isn't using the right model. And what happens a lot is that it's not just affecting one part of your business. What's what's happening is the same parameter and that same model is being used for multiple different use cases. So you may be looking at lifetime value uh, across a variety of different segments or subpopulations of your potential customers and looking at it in a number of different ways, but it's all being driven off of that same model, or initially, what you would even say at the top of the funnel, you'd say it's almost the same algorithm, right? So now you're deploying that same model, that same algorithm across a variety of either use cases or uh, value propositions or subsegments or subpopulations that you want to look at. And if that model is wrong, all of the de- decisions that your teams are going to be making. Are going to be wrong. And all the automated responses and information and in interactions that your organization is going to be having with that mm-hmm. potential client is going to be off. And, yeah. and that's going to, that will impact everything, which is really why, and this is what I've always said. I've been lucky enough, Paris, to sell very advanced technologies in emerging markets. But what I'm not is a deep technologist right? I can barely fix my own printer when it's not working. But when I was in the video communication space in the very, very early days of video communications, I could talk to you about how this video call is working right now. I could talk to you about packet loss and jitter and all of those technical things, but it doesn't really matter. What matters is the impact on the business value that you're trying to have. And that's exactly what we're working with our clients on. And that's exactly why this is such a big emerging growth market. Because video for a podcast like this Is really running over the exact same technology, but it's being applied differently for legal depositions. And it's being applied differently for human resources and and other areas of engagement. And that's exactly what's happening with artificial intelligence. The underlying technologies are very similar, but how they're being used in marketing, in sales, in finance, in a variety of different ways. In uh, healthcare is really huge. Natural language processing natural language understanding is all part of what we're trying to help grow in the industry. And I think it's going to be everywhere, just the same way video is now and and network monitoring has become a standard.
1: Yeah, I can really start to appreciate just the enormous cost. If the model just starts to deviate a little bit, one or two degrees, and then it keeps going down that path, that, that gap will just get larger and larger. And then there's a domino effect that that can just wreck in, in terms of marketing spend. I'm just thinking this could cost hundreds of thousands of dollars in ad spend or uh, just... it's been, it's not
0: used properly or you spend the, the advertising properly and you bring them to a realtor site and you're showing them the wrong types of properties in the wrong locations that aren't really a fit for what that person might be looking for. Or if you're an e-commerce business, you're selling uh, products that are either priced too high or too low. Uh, it's really important in the travel business. Where they're trying to figure out capacity and always trying to fill seats. So, you know, you get on an airplane, the person sitting next to you probably paid a different amount uh, for that seat than you did. It's all depending on when you bought that seat and and where you're coming from and how they're trying to fill that plane. So, all of these are artificial intelligence use cases, which all drive back to AI in marketing and in sales. And we're using you know AI ourselves uh, in our own marketing approach, and we do have a freemium model, very similar to what you were talking about. Paris, what's most important, I find, is being able to, what we all know from marketing, you mentioned SaaS and freemium, is marketers can do a great job of bringing people in. But if they're not the right people and they're not engaged, your actual usage of your product and your conversion from free users to sale is going to be very low. And we're trying to help marketers close that gap.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm seeing some really cool tools now that are also trying to alert people to the most active users so sales teams can follow up. Yep. And yeah, I just see, I think we're still in really early days. And I do believe that machine learning, it used to be mystical art and, and only for certain huge companies. But I do think now that even mid-sized, even smaller companies are going to start using it and it's not going to be so mystical and taboo anymore. I think it's, it is going to start to become more accessible, uh, even to marketing agencies like us. I think more people will be hiring data scientists across many different industries from, yeah. from companies large and small.
0: Yeah. And Paris, what I would say is this is the exact path that emerging markets take, right? So again, look at video. If you go back to the video communication space, only the biggest companies with the biggest conference rooms and hundreds of thousand of dollars to put unbelievable equipment on walls and hook up specific IP based or ISDN lines were able to have that right now. Everybody is able to play in that. But this is where we start as well. We're working with companies that are already using a half a dozen. 25, 50, 100 models that are already live. We have one client that's in the fintech space that asked for pricing. While they only have 200 models that are live now, they've asked for pricing for over 2,000 models because they know they're going to grow and they want to lock the pricing in now. And from a business perspective and a go-to-market perspective around sales and marketing, we have found, as we've looked at what our, our ICP is, what our ideal customer profile is, is it where the growth is or is it exactly where there's already that big need And again, we're really selling against the belief and the capability of building out these tools internally versus turning to an outside solution. Now, I'd say my biggest competitor, while there are three or four other players in the space that are all helping to grow the overall industry, is the belief that the machine, the MLOps team or the data scientists that built these models can also manage them and monitor them and, 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 and track them over time. And the reality is just like the way we've turned to other outsourced solutions. These teams are starting to now look for outsource solutions because they don't want to be in the business of model monitoring observability. They want to be in the business of selling whatever products that they have.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What advice would you give to a company that's maybe a mid-sized company looking to try to hire their first data scientist? And yeah. you've got uh, an idea of how to find this person and how to who's going to manage them?
0: Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. I'm not in the data science side of the business. I'm obviously in the, the marketing and sales side, but here's what I know. That what we're seeing is a move from individual data scientists that were building their models, training their models, and then owning their models to really this emergence of the ML ops team. And the same way there was an IT team that started to take over responsibilities for IT elements within an organization, we're now starting to see ML ops teams. And there's reasons why. And the biggest reason has to do with scale. Because when you're working with with data scientists that are individually building, managing, and retraining their own models, you're not being able to apply that learning and those capabilities on a broader basis. And also it's creating risk for the organization because they don't really know what's happening in those small siloed individuals and individual departments that are using data scientists to, to manage all the models. So I'm seeing the biggest trend in our industry right now is probably the growth of ML ops teams. What also makes this interesting Paris is that in the past, over the last you know couple of years, it wasn't really clear who owned the model, who owned it, who was responsible for it. And certainly who had the budget for things like monitoring and observability and who was responsible for its impact, On the bottom line of the business and its impact on the business. And what we're seeing now is instead of fingers pointing in all different directions, go talk to the IT people, go talk to the business unit that wants this model for some particular purpose. There's now an MLOps team that is owning the responsibility for artificial intelligence which is really the buzzword. MLOps is more the technical, machine learning is more the technical side, but the use of artificial intelligence across their organization. I was just at two different conferences, the ODSC conference up in Boston about two weeks ago and artificial intelligence in the legal space in New York recently. And that is really where the industry is moving towards. So when you are bringing people on, and finding them is difficult because they are probably the most important technical people in the space right now as data scientists but bring it when you're bringing them on it's very important that you're looking not just for what your needs are today but what the growth of your business is going to be as you grow your use of artificial intelligence and when companies start using artificial intelligence in one space it tends to very quickly flow across into many others yeah huge industry for growth
1: so if the ml ops team in a typical organization, once it forms, it's serving different business units. Where does it sit in the org structure and who does the MLOps team report up into?
0: (laughs) I think if you asked all the folks that are running and building MLOps teams right now, they'd be asking that same question. I think Mm -hmm. in different organizations, it fits in different areas, generally under an area of operations, because they are not just, there's three key areas here. There's the business use case that matters, the other piece is, when we're talking about artificial intelligence, machine learning, it's all about data. That's why it's the data scientist. And all that data needs to be secured, and all that data is very often proprietary. One of the issues of having a cloud-based MLOps or AI service of any type is the fact that data is extremely proprietary, and moving it into the cloud in any way, shape, or form is a concern. That's why my company also provides a uh, an on-prem solution and, and a hybrid solution, which is where we're seeing a tremendous amount of growth. So... This is really a, a, an overlap of from, a mar- from a business perspective and where it comes in from marketing into these types of groups, where it's operations, it's technology, and it's security. For me to close the last enterprise deal that we did, I probably spent more time with the security team than I even did the business unit. The business unit understood what they needed, they understood the value propositions we could provide. But being able to sell into and to market to the risk analysts, right? The security groups, that's extremely important. I think the last thing we did was a 130 question security questionnaire just around what would be happening with the data. So when it comes to marketing, we're looking and expanding out of just the business units themselves, but now looking at the risk groups and the legal groups, because they have to be understanding about what's happening with artificial intelligence, what's happening with bias in artificial intelligence, particularly in the hiring process, right? Mm -hmm. In HR and recruiting. Yeah. So exactly. there's bigger risks. And now this is becoming an element that many different groups are, are starting to focus on.
1: Yeah. I'd, I'd like to dig a little more into the data privacy aspect and the legal and compliance aspects, yeah. because now well, I'm in Europe and GDPR is, is we're a few yeah. years into GDPR. And now we're starting to see in the US CCPR, I believe in California and d- yeah. different versions of that. And I fully expect that that's going to be rolled out across all 50 States eventually. But And of course, we see what Apple is doing and how how much Apple is pushing the privacy conversation right now. So in light of all these privacy concerns, what are some of the pitfalls that a leader of an ML ops team needs to look out for when it comes to ensuring compliance with data privacy laws when you want to still leverage all this data? Where do you get into a a tricky situation or a dangerous situation with customers' data, basically? What are some of the pitfalls to watch out for?
0: So it's a great question. Some of the things that that we are all focused on, both from my side of the industry and from the customer side and the corporate side, is how do we look at data, but not not look at it with individual data points that would allow you to be able to hone down to the individual user itself. What we're focused on is looking at data in an aggregated format, and we're looking at points of data. We're looking at where the data point was here and where it is now. It doesn't really matter. What that data is, the question is what we're really looking at is the change in data. And that's in the world of MLOps and and, and data science when you're looking at data. So there's a lot of focus around what data can we aggregate and really can we use data to do calculations on, but do it without having any uh, personal identification data points that are associated with it. And what they're able to then do is understand and then go back and re-tag the people that data came out of, but we're never really touching the personal, the personal identifying, identifiable pieces of, of that data itself. We're looking at the data points, and we're looking at the changes in data points from one from one point of time to another, and that's okay. really what's looking when you're looking at how these models are happening. Okay, so
1: none, none of that data is technically this data isn't personally identifiable information. It's aggregated, it's anonymized, and you're looking at the. You're looking at the patterns or the changes from different points in time, but not at um, not at the data itself in a in a silo. Or a, that that a that that's time that's, stamp. Okay. that's correct.
0: Nor do we keep any of the data itself. However, this is why we've moved towards an on-prem and a hybrid solution, in which some instances where the only data that might leave is where we're doing the calculations, or we can even do all that on-prem. But this is an extremely important part, and it's really one of the parts that I would say is still being figure it out. It slows down the sales and marketing process. And this is what you, from a marketing perspective, there's a lot of education that needs to be done. We're in an emerging market. We are evangelists as much as we're marketers and we are educators. As much as we are marketers recognizing that people they they may have a need is one thing educating them on what they need to do to address that potential need to see the gap that they might have or the potential for an issue down the road is really what we're focused on and i think that's what most emerging markets where you're really out evangelizing um, more than you're just trying to sell there's no budget for this there's not necessarily a line item like i said there's not necessarily a a budget owner we're creating that by illustrating the need, and that need is being created because of the requirement and the interest in integrating more artificial intelligence into whatever their underlying business problems may be or business cases may be. That's
1: really interesting because, yeah, you're selling into such a new space. You're not really selling into people with budgets. You're making them aware of a risk and a pain point that they didn't know existed for the most part. Am Am I right?
0: You're 100%. And mainly what I focus on and what we focus on and in any emerging market companies believe that they can take on these capabilities, but what they realize and what we try to explain to them and illustrate is that the person that you've hired to do whatever the core job that they need to do is that's what they need to do. You're in the business of selling insurance, real estate, gaming, finance, whatever it might be. You don't want to necessarily be in the business of model monitoring and observability. And you don't want, this is a tool for your MLOps team. This is a tool for your data scientists, but for them to become experts at it, and to build this on their own and to do it in a way that completely removes the risk and provides the data points and information that they would need in an easy to use way. Because one of the issues that we've had to address is to set up model monitoring observability used to literally take months to just to get the model set up properly. We can now do it within minutes and hours and within a few days, you're fully up and running because we provide an out of the box solution that allows you to upload your model and automatically we're able to determine the metrics, determine the parameters, determine the points and then you as a user can go in and customize what do you want to mod- what do you want to monitor, how do you want to be alerted. So we found the right balance which is really important in marketing and sales and product led growth type of products which ours is. It's all based on how we can give as much out of the box capability so people can use it quickly. Time to value is critical in these types of products, yeah, which I'm sure. But yeah. then how do we also provide them enough customization capability as well so that they can use it more specifically for what their use case is?
1: Yeah. You mentioned product-led growth, and that's been a big theme on this podcast. How are you all what, How – what is your approach or your motion for product-led growth And what are you seeing in in terms of, are you allowing people to, I think it's three models are for free or what was it? No, we've
0: actually moved, removed that completely. We are completely a freemium led product. We are completely a product led growth product. Since we've done that, we have blown up hundreds and hundreds of new users have registered onto our platform over the last, I don't know, eight weeks or so since we launched the, the full freemium capability. And now it all comes down to easy to use, very good support that's built into the site itself so that they can do it more on their own. Obviously, our external support that scales with them, but really communicating with them and driving them to not just register, but to actually upload their models, then get them to set up the monitoring policies that they want and the integration of alerts and where they want those alerts to go. They want the alerts to go to a Slack channel, email directly integrated into something like New Relic or Datadog or some other capability uh, that's accessible through Webhook. So there's many elements of this. And this is really where marketing and sales and product is working extremely tightly together. And in any of these SaaS-based businesses, this is really what matters. Because if not, all of those marketing numbers that we look at are really vanity metrics. Yeah. Does it really matter how many new people we've registered if they're not really using it? And then if they're not, if, you know, how much... How often are they using it and at what level? Because at some point, yeah, I do want to convert them to be a billable user. And that's going to all come from the growth that they have around their product itself. That's kind of where we're at on the product. And that's how we're approaching the market right now.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned the the, the really essential concept of time to value. Is yep. time to value typically for a freemium user? Is it when they upload their first model? Is it what so uploading it, the first to...
0: model is, uh, I would actually say there's two elements. Uploading the first model is the first important part. But if you upload the model, but you haven't set up any monitoring policies, what are you looking to track? Then there's really no value. You can look at the data streaming through your model, but it's really have they set up a monitoring policy. And as soon as they set up a monitoring policy, now they're really getting the value because when there is an incident, when the data does go outside of the parameters that it shouldn't, then we're able to actually give them the value that they're looking for, which is that alert and what the issue is.
1: Because that's the real... Yeah, that's actually the value. It's not just uploading the model and having the data streaming through, but actually defining a use case, setting the parameters and the alerts. Yeah. And so typically what... You Are you looking at the time between uploading a model and then setting up these notifications? Very much so. Notifications? We look at
0: everything. So we look at people that, yeah, we look at people that register. And then also, and I'm sure many people see this who are doing SaaS-based premium. You know, the, the biggest of departures even before that, which is what we're extremely focused on, which is somebody may register. We send them an email just to verify their email. They need to verify their user information and how many people convert there. So we have a system set up through our tools. We use HubSpot and a few other tools, but we are able to determine when somebody joins, when somebody registers, are they an ICP or are they just some student or somebody who's trying it out? Are they an enterprise potential prospect or are they more of a smaller or sized commercial prospect? We are immediately able to determine and we're using our own technologies to determine the process and the flow that they go through and then they're getting the right communications from us. And we have a flow with our SDR team. Our product people are very in, in, in helping support this as well. And obviously through marketing. Now, the one thing we've had to manage as marketers and as salespeople is too many touch points. We were at some point you can get so interested in making sure that you're engaging these potential users and that you're converting them in many different ways that they're getting too many emails too quickly. And we've oh, constantly working on the flow and the cadence. Of what that yeah, is. yeah,
1: that's really interesting. So the uh, the time to value it, that is very interesting. And when you're acquiring these users, let's just talk numbers here about how many how many new freemium users, per ha- on a weekly basis. What's a good week for you all now on on freemium new freemium acquisitions?
0: Yeah, I'd say in the freemium acquisition space, we're looking for hundreds and in, in the wow. courses of a month or so. Yeah, no, there's mm-hmm. a lot of, but again, there's a tremendous amount of interest and a tremendous amount of need. This is yeah. an incredibly fast-growing industry on a global scale. The company is actually an Israeli-based technology company out of Tel Aviv. I'm the chief revenue officer for the company globally, and I'm the GM of the U.S. business. But most of our business is actually all around the world and out of uh, Europe and other places. So it's a very large, fast-paced global industry with a tremendous amount of need. Again, we know we can turn the spigot on. We're all marketers, right? Depending on what we do, we know we can get more people to register. The value for us is how do we engage them, how do we convert them, and how do we get them value as quickly as possible? And that has been what we've been really focused on because we know that if someone doesn't set up, if they don't respond in a certain amount of time, if they don't verify their email, if they don't upload that first model, then we're never going to really get to engage them and really show them the value, which is what we're trying to do with the freemium solution to begin with.
1: Gotcha. And so a user comes in and you can analyze the email address, maybe do some enrichment yep, to determine exactly if it's a if it's a dot edu, it's probably a student. If it's a Gmail account, who knows? We do know
0: because we try to connect that up with things like Zoom info or seamless or whatever, and we do our very best to actually find I would say some of our so you most go important find the
1: person. Yeah.
0: Yeah, some of our most important and we have some some human capital that's on that as well. And we go into LinkedIn and try to find who these people are. I would say some of our biggest current active, either new customers or certainly the biggest opportunities in our pipeline have come from people that have registered using Gmail. Now, a big Mm -hmm. discussion from a marketing perspective around SaaS and freemium type solutions is should we accept them? Wouldn't it be a lot easier if you had to put in your corporate email? It would certainly make it easier for my team. We'd know who everybody is. We're still comfortable because we're able to enrich that data well enough that we're comfortable taking Gmails, but that's a big part of it. When someone comes in as a Gmail, we don't know what company they are. We don't know what their title necessarily is. We just know their name and and what their email address is, and then we connect with everybody, but that's how we try to determine. Yeah,
1: but then you look a little downstream at how they're using it, and if a Gmail user is extremely engaged uploading uploading a model and setting those alerts right away and, and setting the definitions. At that point, at some point, then aren't you asking them to complete a profile and then you're getting their name? Oh, and their of course. Oh, yeah. So if you filter out email, you'd be ignoring all of that potential.
0: Crazy. We would never want to do that. What we're finding is that a lot of this is educational for these potential users. What you have is a lot of data scientists and MLOps managers and directors who are trying to see the tools that are out there they're not even doing it in their official corporate capacity. They're just trying to figure out what's out there for them to use. So they go on and they just sign up using their Gmail account. We're fine with that. And like I said, we've connected with some extremely large, well-known global corporations through people using their Gmail account. It's very interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you could just be, in some cases, someone in an organization who's really in a exploratory mode. Maybe they don't want to submit their work email and maybe they don't want the reply to come, the onboarding email or whatever it is to come to their work email. Maybe they, they prefer to be a little bit more stealth in the beginning. Or So yeah, you just, I've heard of so many companies filtering out personal emails at Gmail. We've chosen not to. Days. It's
0: worked extremely well for us. And for those folks mm-hmm. that we don't know, we still respond to them. And if we find out that they're not, look, anybody can use the solution. That's terrific. Those yeah. that might be a commercial opportunity for us are ones that we're obviously trying to vet from a marketing and a sales perspective. But from a marketing perspective in our approach, who we're targeting, how we're targeting. And there is a very big community of data scientists and ops practitioners. And we are really trying to focus on them because those are going to be the users of our solution. And those are going to be the companies that are already have a need or a developing need for MLOps monitoring and observability. So emerging markets are fun, but there's a you're managing with as many knowns as you are unknowns. And we're working and making adjustments day in and day out.
1: Yeah. And how far along are you all with measuring lifetime value cohorts? Is it
0: still early yeah. for that? or? very early days for us what we're most focused on is overall growth potential what we know paris is that companies that are starting to use ai and maybe using it for like i said four or five or six use cases have a vision of trying to use it for three or four times that amount we know that there are companies that you know have 25 or 30 models in 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 production And they want to have 50 or 100 because they know they have use cases and real value for that. We ultimately know that some of these larger corporations and businesses that we're working with across a variety of industries are going to have thousands of models, which is our focus is really on scale. If you only have a few models, maybe you can handle it internally. But if you're looking to scale, it's like creating your own CRM. This is really what we talk about. Do I want to have my team build my own CRM or do I I just want to use HubSpot? Or salesforce.com. It's a very similar type of approach, which is if you want to scale your use of artificial intelligence to drive the underlying value of your business, do you really want to be an expert at ML model monitoring or do you want to be an expert at how to build your own company and focus on the things that are most important to you?
1: Yeah, gotcha. I'd like to pivot over to something a little bit different, but it's an sure. idea that you pointed out. And I'd, I'd like to hear more of, of your thinking on this, which is how to succeed through failure yeah and so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna take a hundred and eighty degree shift now away from a i and and m l ops yeah. so how to succeed through failure i think a lot of people have failed and have achieved a lot of learning from that. What is your approach? Why is that a topic that you want <laughs> to bring up on this podcast?
0: I think it's extremely important particularly in emerging markets, but in understand and in, and in new businesses, being able to pivot successfully, but being able to succeed through failure. And I think two or three things that come to light is, is first of all, is understanding your market. Everyone believes that they know who their market is until they actually get into the market. And I think that you have to fail and be willing to fail in a number of different places to find out where you can really succeed. Now, the most important thing is to do that quickly, as everyone talks about failing fast, so that you can identify those opportunities. But I think it's the worst thing you can do is think that everything and that you're going to not fail when you're in a startup technology environment. And by the way, I've done startups within Microsoft and startups and new divisions and new product launches within Cisco. And actually the encouragement in companies like that is, yeah, let's do the very best we can to strategically move forward successfully, but it's okay if we fail. And I think that's okay. The video communication space was really just lumbering along for many years and then it kind of tipped when it moved on to the personal video communication idea, right? The idea that people would ever do video from their own computer and not in a big room on a huge TV set really is what changed it. So there was a lot of what I'd say failure along the way in products and approaches, but it got us to the point where video has become the standard norm. I was at Microsoft for the launch of Windows 95. And let me tell you, Windows 3.1 and some of the iterative approaches before Windows 95, was game-changing. Sure. was. They were, maybe not flops, but they certainly didn't change the world the way Windows 95 yeah, did. Yeah,
1: that's an iconic. And I happened
0: to be there during that time period. And I just think that, that it's okay to fail. And I think that when you're in the space of new and emerging markets, you almost need to be prepared for that. And I encourage my team. I encourage the businesses that I've been a, an executive leader of, is that we need to figure out how to fail so that we can really understand the market because in many instances, even the market doesn't know what it's gonna ultimately need. And and I think that's where the failure comes into play for the things that I've been involved in the past. And I think it's okay. Look, some of these businesses, they iterate and they, they, they morph into different things, but that's the process that it takes, especially from a marketing perspective. I always look at what the marketing plan is from a few quarters back, and when you look back and say, wow, we really thought that was going to work, but that 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 didn't happen. And that's okay because that helps us move in, in new directions. So I have found in my career from a business perspective and personally that some of the, the biggest failures is, is what has opened us up to probably some of the greatest opportunities.
1: Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned looking back a few quarters, we do OKR setting every quarter. And yep. I always really have a chuckle and look back a couple of quarters at the OKRs that we set and they're so different in, in a lot of ways than where we are now, the, the reality of where we are now with the business. And it really just goes to show how quickly we're evolving, and really, where the mindset was. And, and that's reflected in the OKRs two quarters ago. Now we're. we're in a whole different uh, direction
0: yeah I, I think it's i really believe in a lily pad approach i call it to the growth of these types of businesses it's just to get from one step to the next step to the next step right how do we get those first three clients how do we get the next three and how do we get 10 more how do we find a, a, a the right the right solution within the right market that we can really expand out And a lot of early days in advanced technology startups is finding companies that are not really just good initial customers more importantly they're helping you develop your product as well and through those kind of development partnerships, you're able to then take that solution and then bring it to other clients, uh, potential clients in that same vertical space. It's really important to understand where you can do that. And I just think it's always about kind of go, keep moving forward in some respects, and also looking at where that North star is gonna be and just say, look, if we can get halfway there, we can get the other way back. I'm a big runner. And when I wanna go on long runs, I force myself. So, well, if I run four or five miles out.
1: You've gotta come back. Yeah. <laughs>
0: right? So if we don't, I think what a lot of startups do is they decide that's the North Star and they need to know how to get there. And I always say, no, no guys, we only really need to figure out how to get about 30% or 50% of the way, because it's going to change anyway. But if we can get 50% of the way, we know that we'll be able to get to the rest and we'll be able to get back to where we want to get to. And I think that's really an important approach to how you build these startup businesses in a variety of different environments.
1: Yeah, that's great. Yeah, getting halfway there, knowing that you got to come back. I I do that with swimming sometimes, and, and recently um was was thinking that same thing on a long swim, which was not in a pool. It was in the sea, and sure I was thinking yeah, as far. I'm feeling good now, but however far I go, at some point I'm gonna have to. I'm not even halfway there until I decide. I'm going to stop and turn turn around.
0: around. Hey, Paris, I'll add to that. I've done the New York City Triathlon, which starts with a mile swim in the Hudson River, which to me, while it's the shortest part, it's the craziest part because you're swimming a mile in the Hudson River. And I'm not even worried about what I'm going to do to get on my bike and ride 30 something miles and then get off the bike and and do a 10 kilometer run to finish the race. All I care about, and I know how long it's going to take me, I'm like, I have, I just, I'm going to get in this water and if I can get out of this water in 25 minutes, This race is over for me because I know I can get on the bike and do the run, regardless how long it takes. And it's that same approach to building a business. I'm not really worried about the last two miles of the run three hours from now. I'm worried about how I'm going to get out of this water in 25 minutes. And I think that's really to my approach to 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 how you build these businesses in emerging markets. I'm not really worried about where I'm going to be in three years at my company. I'm worried about what are the next important six 10 12 deals how am i going to land those great new clients how are we going to find the right way to market to them and uh continue to evolve our approach as the market evolves that's a whole nother conversation about marketing in today's version of an emerging market versus what it's going to be in a few years consistently adjusts as well um that's my approach to it
1: i love that i love that triathlon example especially with swimming you Swing yeah. has a way of forcing you into the present moment because if you really get too distracted, you, you could drown. So you, you better stay focused. And Stu, yeah. this has been fantastic. Was there anything that I didn't ask you that you wanted me to ask, or is there anything else that you think our audience should know?
0: Paris. I think you're doing a great job with the with bringing this sort of information. I, I you know all the different podcasts you do, you bring on a lot of different, very unique perspectives to marketing and go to market strategy. And I, I think what we're doing is fantastic. I appreciate the time to talk about my little piece of the world and what I'm focused on. And I'm available to anybody who wants to connect on LinkedIn uh, or contact me directly, but I really appreciate the conversation. And I think we're in an exciting new market and um, what artificial intelligence is going to do and machine learning and how that connects to the metaverse and how that connects to a lot of other really important things. It's just going to be the next, you know, people talk about web three, this is almost moving into the next version of even web four.
1: Awesome. Wow. Stu, where can people find you online?
0: Uh, They can find me at LinkedIn at uh, Stu Gold and they can find me, anybody can contact me directly at uh, Stu.Gold at superwise.ai. Awesome. And I appreciate it. Thanks Thanks so much
1: on the podcast. Thanks. Thanks again, Stu.
0: It's great stuff. Paris, good to see you.
1: Same here. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about our growth marketing agency, visit hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P dot, online. Have a great day.